Coca, su naray, su naray en ti. 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 Hello. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Mango TV podcast. Today we have Geronimo Mazzarassa. Geronimo is an ayahuasca community activist and independent researcher. He has produced and written two documentaries about ayahuasca. The first about the Brazilian ayahuasca churches, the second about the use of ayahuasca in the treatment of drug addiction. In the last 20 years he has traveled extensively through South America, researching a broad range of ayahuasca practices, and has lectured internationally on ayahuasca tourism and the appropriation of indigenous knowledge. He works as a social innovation coordinator for the ICERS Foundation and is a founding member of the Plantaforma. In the last five years, he has devoted most of his energy to figure out how ceremonial plant practices can be integrated outside of their culture of origin. Welcome, Geronimo. Let's start with the um, origins of, uh, of ayahuasca. Tell us a little bit the cultural context. How do we think, you know, when, when it was invented, by who, and uh, what was the initial use of this uh, plant? Ayahuasca, as we know it today, as it's mostly used in the, in the world, or is the most popular formula, it's, a, it's actually a preparation. So it's a combination of two plants. This already makes it different from other sort of psychoactive uh, plants of uh, traditional use that people might be more familiar with, like peyote or, or magic mushrooms or tobacco in which they're just simply plants that are being applied. Ayahuasca is actually a preparation. There are two plants that are cooked together to create this, uh, this decoction. So because, because it is a preparation, um, because there's a formula, we can, um, we can assume that somebody came up with it. It's very, very likely an indigenous person in the Amazon, or a group of them, or uh, uh, many indigenous uh, uh, people in different groups at the same time. All of these things are possible, we will never know. All we know is that there is a beginning to this formula and that it started with a small group of people, you know, one or many, and that uh, ever since this happened, and this probably happened hundreds if not uh, thousands of years ago, ever since this happened, uh, I, uh, this formula has been expanding and it's been growing out uh, of its place of origin. Uh, whatever it was somewhere in the Amazon. So uh, it went from this early discoverer or discoverers. We imagine that from there to their family and then from there to their neighbors, uh, all within the same group, and then from there to other indigenous groups. I mean, we can assume this because we've seen it happen. We know now there's at least, you know, around 70 indigenous groups that use ayahuasca in the Amazon. Uh, and then this expansion has continued to happen beyond indigenous groups. Uh, already a few hundred years ago, it went from indigenous groups to um, uh, sort of urban populations in the jungle. And this was a sort of a mixed blood, uh, a mix of indigenous and, 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 colo and colonists, sort of uh, nationals. And uh, from there, it expanded to the cities outside of the jungle. From there, it expanded to other countries. And from there, more recently, perhaps in the last 20 or 30 years, it has expanded to the rest of the world. Nowadays, you can find um, ayahuasca um, sessions, I would say, just about in every country in the world and in some countries, in the Amazon, in the Amazon countries, of course, in the countries of origin, there is, it's, it's quite widespread. Uh, just to give an example, the largest ayahuasca church in Brazil has more than 30,000 members. Uh, so, you know, we're talking 72 indigenous groups, at least 50 or 60,000 in the in the Brazilian churches, you know, tens of thousands of people in the Amazon are, are consuming, uh, are partaking in ayahuasca. And outside of the Amazon, um, for example, in Europe, for example, in Spain, where we are right now, I estimate there must be, you know, more than 100 uh, um, uh, guides or facilitators providing this. So before we dive into the, the present, you know, um, I would like to structure this conversation between you know the past the present and the future of ayahuasca so before we dive into the present i want to stay a little bit on the um, historical use you know you said hundreds maybe thousand years ago what do you think was the um, the reason of using this plant Wh why why the indigenous people started using this plant 
We don't know. There's, there's, a, there's of course myths and legends, you know, in the in the cultures and the people that have uh, traditionally used ayahuasca. It it tends to feature very prominently on the creation myths, together with other very important plants. Uh, so you know, there's there's uh, for people that are living in the Amazon, some plants are absolutely key to their survival. You know, among them manioc, for example, which is the staple food. And uh, this means that in, this is also reflected in their creation myth. So that, you know, the, uh, so very early at the beginning of time, humankind was given manioc, usually by some sort of you know spirit or mythological creature, so they could thrive. So th- this gives you an idea of the importance of the plant. In cultures that uh, have traditionally used ayahuasca, ayahuasca usually comes pretty close or right next to manioc as something that came at the beginning of time. And this gives sort of an idea of, an, of the importance that it has in the culture. In terms of the, the use, what we see is that as the, as the sort of the, the population and the cultures in the Amazon have changed because we're not things, there's been a lot of changes in the last 500 years. Uh, since basically you know Europeans arrived, so what we can see is that there was on the sort of the most traditional use of ayahuasca that we know or what we th- believe are the survives of the most traditional use. It's a very communal, uh, even one could say political use of ayahuasca. Um, uh, there's, it is consumed in group rituals that involves a series of dances where the, the most important myths and times of the year and, and times in the mythological calendar as well were reenacted, recreated, danced. And so yeah, so b- very groupal and it had to do with, you know, um, the connection of the of, of the group to the to the environment to nature to the territory and the alignment of all the social forces the forces the the the, the, and the, the alignment of the human group to its environment and this meant being in go- in peace or in right relation with the different spirits that own the, the animals or the forest and nature i'm not doing the best job anthropologists have written uh, long and and uh, and why about all this, but I mean, I think it's a good enough sort of summary. Then when colonization happens, there's a sort of devastating uh, ethnocide that happens, you know, because of because of the plagues, because of the diseases, and because of just, you know, you know, cultural destruction that came with missionary work and, you know, and, and, and sort of colonization in general. And what happens is a lot of these groups become de- decimated um, and then, uh, and then they are so you know there's uh, millions die, and then the, the the survivors are gathered by priests into things called reductions, which are these sort of villages that that are built around the church that usually combine three, four, five, six, seven different indigenous groups that were living in the area. What is left of them are now living under you know close to the church, and there as a sort of a new sort of culture, even a new ethnic identity emerges out of this. Um, ayahuasca use is continued there, but it changes, uh, and it goes from being, like I said, something very cultural or very, or very, or very, very political, to it seems like something much more fixated on healing, on individual healing. You have people that are severely traumatized, and they have lost their culture, they have, or they're losing their culture. They, you know, they're they're being colonized, they're being conquered, they're being vanquished. Um, and there ayahuasca begins to continues to be used in sort of healing rituals that have more to do with individual healing Uh, a group of people get together to heal their traumas Um, it still ties to the old traditions and the spirit work and all of the sort of indigenous culture aspect but it's not so perhaps not so tribal and and more spiritual and healing Um, from there cities begin to emerge in the jungle the process takes hundreds of years and then sort of a, a sort of mix mix mestizo mixed population between half colonies half indigenous people that are half indigenous you know you could say bloodlines but no longer recognize an indigenous identity or an indigenous uh, an ethnic group um, they begin to uh, gather in cities and they begin to practice this sort of sort of folk healing um, that is uh, that has elements also of sort of European or Spanish uh, curanderismo, which are the sort of the sort of the, the village, the rural folk healers, bone setters, uh, people working with plants, etc. So here en- enters a very strong influence of Catholicism, and but still maintains a link to um, 
to the indigenous groups and you know the, the songs very often uh, feature you know words in the indigenous languages even though sometimes people don't even understand what they're saying they they, they feature calls to different things they feature calls to different groups of plants that are power plants and spirits so you know there's a lot of in this sort of vegetalismo which is this sort of urban folk healing ayahuasca phenomenon there's a lot that one recognizes of the original uh, indigenous traditions but there's also a lot of new stuff um, then there's the phenomenon that happens in Brazil where you know um, a population that is no longer indigenous but is actually of African origin that had gone to colonize the jungle and work in the rubber boom um, they come in contact with ayahuasca and they develop this sort of syncretic religions um, uh, that are a mixture of that contain elements contain ayahuasca but also elements of African traditions and, and, uh, and European Christianity there's three of these religions in Brazil um, and then from there it would jump you would say to the west and becomes a sort of psychotherapeutic tool so you can see there's a wide range of uses throughout history I heard um, that some tribes would use it for evil purpose to to send curse to their enemies you know they talk about this um, uh, dart poisonous dart can you comment on that is this something you're aware of yes it's um, I think they would not say it's, uh, it, it might be that they don't say that it's used for evil purposes but for self-defense right this is this is this targets you know so there were there's been traditionally uh, among indigenous groups there's been uh, in the amazon there's been peace and also there's been warfare and there's also been you know periods of peace and periods of warfare uh, these things that happen between neighbors you know we europeans are also very familiar with this americans also had wars with their neighbors it's not it's just human in the amazon sort of traditional view disease is not the uh, the act of uh, sort of the, the random act of a, of a virus or a bacteria that you just happen to catch because it was you know because you touch your face uh, after you touch something infected but it, it's actually a sort of a, a, a voluntary it, it, it comes as, as some sort of transgression or as the effect of others so either you broke a rule you stepped into an area that was tabooed you went you ate the food that you could and you took uh, plate things from a tree or animals from a place of the forest where it couldn't be and then the owner of the uh, the spirits of the forest took revenge on you by making you sick or uh, later as as, uh, as people begin to live close closer together and in cities this became more having to do with your neighbors or the people made you sick or took revenge on you because usually uh, in the reading they were jealous so they uh, uh, there's something very different there Amazonian people believe that jealousy is highly toxic and undes undesirable. Uh, we believe that jealousy it's a it's a it's a byproduct of success, and that it's a, and that uh, and that having haters is a sign that you're doing everything right. In the Amazon, they would disagree and they would say that having haters is what made you sick. Very good. Thank you very much. Um, last question regarding the the cultural context and the history. Um, how is there a difference between the different? area, the different country of the Amazon, is there a difference between the Peruvian use of ayahuasca compared to Brazilian, the Colombian, the Ecuadorian? Yes, of course, there's, 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 difference, that, uh, there's difference from tribe to tribe uh, and from group to group. There's differences in, even in the, you know, the Brazilian churches, which are much more recent. There's difference from church to church. Um, you could say in that sense, I think it's, it's, it's easier to understand the ayahuasca practices as a sort of art form so you know you have I don't know let's pick up something like hip-hop you know uh, you know although there's a sort of there's such thing as hip-hop the general sort of art hip-hop it's very different from in, in New York than in Atlanta both things remain hip-hop but there's sort of very local uh, flavor to it is part of the art form that it takes different even there's even it's even different from neighborhood to neighborhood and and it's different from rapper to rapper um, this is also the case with ayahuasca except perhaps it's even much more varied and rich than hip-hop because it's not been around for for 50 years but for hundreds of not thousands I understand but just to say a little bit more about um, you know what I hear is that you know the Peruvian practice is more um, in the dark is more introspective is more for and 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 maybe now we're already starting talking about uh, how is it used today but you always hear the peruvian ritual is more like 
you know, inner journey, um, where it's like the Brazilian sometimes is more celebratory, is more dancing, is more celebratory. Um, what do you think about that? I would say being very sort of making a, a, a big generalization. I would say that m most of what we understand to be the Peruvian design, it's actually descendant from what I was describing previously as vegetalismo. So a group of people gather around a healer in order to get individual healing. They all do it together, but they gather around one person in order to get individual healing. This happens in the dark, and, and usually only the healer is singing. It comes from directly from sort of this indigenous tradition, the line that I drew before. In what we call the Brazilian design, what we could call the Brazilian design, there's actually a lot of influence from the churches. Uh, what this, by this I mean uh, sort of the influence of African spirituality. The main difference, one big, big difference that one could make between Amazonian shamanism and sort of African spirituality is that in African uh, Amazonian shamanism, one person stands in the center and everybody is, is sort of an audience or, 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 or they're subjects of the healing and there's one shaman in the center. In the African spiritual, everybody participates. So, you know, in, in rituals, you know, so some things like Umbanda or Macumba or Voodoo, you know, it's not just one, one, it's not the main sort of leader that gets uh, the spirits that come through. Everybody's, you know, not everybody, but a lot of people are being. So the, the out of this comes a certain way of the Brazilian, quote-unquote, modern tradition or design that involves the lights being on and everybody singing as opposed to one person. And then last, um, you could have, roughly speaking, a sort of Colombian or Yahé culture thing. It is similar to the Brazilian, but I would, uh, sorry, to the Peruvian, but I would say that in Colombia, because of the historic situation and because of all the violence that happened, ethnic identity among indigenous groups is much stronger than it is in, in, in Peru. So what one finds in Colombia, while it resembles the Peruvian, I would say it, it has a stronger sort of um, tribal or ethnic cultural aspect and difference. That it, and, the, and in this way, it is closer to something that happened one step before vegetalismo. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. This is very useful. And um, allow me a personal question. So how do you, what was your personal story with ayahuasca? How did you discover it? How is your practice evolving? Do you still use it? Uh, what's your preference in terms of this thing you describe, a more African participatory versus more Peruvian where the healer does the healing? What's your personal story, if you don't mind sharing? My own path with ayahuasca has been very long and started 20 years ago. I approached ayahuasca because of a you know personal interest in all of these uh, in on, in all of these substances but even before this before i discovered sort of you know shamanic use of plants i was already into you know psychedelics and sort of experimentation in a more sort of psychonactic way with my friends and in college and you know i think lots of people will have similar experiences you know i went to grateful dead concerts i went to raves um i was interested in this because i felt you know, that some of those nights things very special or important things were happening and I thought that this was, I was curious about this. So I became curious about traditional use and then I started together with a, with a Canadian collaborator working on a documentary about it because it's the best way to approach something that you're curious about is to make a documentary about it. You know I agree. Or a podcast. <laughs> it just gives you a fantastic excuse to you know, contact people that you find interesting and you don't know and, you know and ask to sit with them and have a conversation about these topics that are you know, like same way but 20 years ago. So I was on the one hand researching for a documentary and, on, and, and, do, and filming and on the other hand I was you know, participating in all of these things. I was very interested in my own personal process. It's been 20 years now, thanks to the documentary, I've been able to to contact and to be with and to sit with and even to drink ayahuasca with a very broad, varied group of people of, of, the, of the different, you know, many different examples of all the different, you know, three designs that I discovered, that I described before I've been able to experience. Um, I think that 
there's there's one part about ayahuasca that is an exploration and then there's one part about ayahuasca that is a practice so the more one drinks the better one gets at it Uh, you can also see it for example like if you got into poetry or if you go into film you know the more movies you watch the more you enjoy them the more you get out of them the more you understand about the history of filmmaking and also perhaps the more you develop a certain taste for what is it the type of films that you really enjoy and you really appreciate and then that tends to sort of get narrow no you, it happens also you see that people who watch a lot of films uh, uh, they become sort of picky uh, uh, about what they like and what they don't like same thing people who listen to a lot of music uh, they become you know your, your jazz fiends you know they become kind of very very particular about what this is exactly I find that it happens the same with ayahuasca I find that Uh, or at least that was my experience at the beginning. I was very, I wanted to see and experience as much as possible. And with time, I, this, what I wanted, what I was willing to, you know, the places where I was willing to drink ayahuasca myself, not, not the, uh, my, my interest in the different expressions of ayahuasca remains, but the places where I would sit to drink, which is a different story, where I do my practice, have with time sort of narrowed down to a very particular group. That's it. I mean, I, I'm, 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 a, I'm a little bit hesitant to go into, you know, what group that is. I don't think it's that important. Uh, I, but I think most everybody that has been drinking ayahuasca for some time will resonate with this story, that you get to a point where you narrow. And I think this is uh, also important. As in, a, in a way, um, it's, like any other, it's like any other work. You know, I think, I think, you know, for example, if you're doing psychotherapeutic work, You know, you tend to have, you know, a, psycho a psychologist, a therapist, one, two, three, when you start. And at some point, you sort of settle down with the person that will become your therapist and uh, for the long term. And, you know, sometimes these relationships are, you know, very, very long, the last decades. Um, and it's true that one could try other psychoanalysts. But at the end, you know, there's more. The, the work that you've done with the person that you chose already weights heavier than the possibility of finding more interesting or more or, or better prepared psychoanalysts. So the, I also sometimes make the sample with friends. You know, it's like once you have a, a friend, uh, which took it takes many years to make a real friend. Once you have a real friend, you know, somebody, you know, the idea of like, you know, trying a different friend, it doesn't make any sense. And it's possible that there will be another person out there that could be a more interesting friend for you. But you already have this friend and, you know, you the, the 10 years you spend with them is what the friendship is. It's not how you know, interesting or, or, or original or, or, you know. Yeah, this is, a, this is a very good point. We're gonna maybe explore that a little bit more in depth when we're talking about the, the current use. But uh, I just want to reiterate that Geronimo is saying that, you know, this is a practice and um, some people might go from shaman to shaman, from peak experience to peak experience, but to get the most of it, He recommends to stick with one that you resonate with and, 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 and doing the work. But um, in terms of your last question about your personal experience, uh, what, would be, what would be the couple of things that you credit Ayahuasca for having helped you with? I think um, in, in my own life, the, the, the effect of Ayahuasca has been so broad that it's almost invisible. Um, it's almost invisible because it's everywhere, not not because it's so small. It's because it's so big that you can't see it. So it's, it, it'd be really hard to say. I mean, uh, everything, uh, I have no idea what my life would be like if I uh, hadn't come across it, not just because of the experiences I had, because but because of my work, because I, you know, I spent so much time working in this documentary, so much of the troubles I made, so much of the friendships I developed. And then eventually, you know, the work that I do now for ICERS, which is an NGO devoted to these plants. So, you know, at the end, you know, my entire life sort of now, uh, you know, of course, you know, I have friends and families and I have interest outside of ayahuasca, but, you know, such a large part of my life Uh, uh, already for 20 years have sort of revolved around it that it be, it's difficult, it's almost impossible to separate. Um, uh, in that sense, perhaps I would tell a story of a recent uh, experience uh, I had um, where I was, I felt, and this has happened sometimes, you know, the people I've heard comment on this. During the night, the effects were so strong that I felt that I'd been sort of dipped into, like I'd been dipped into a, a bathtub 
full of it and there was nothing else running through my veins i was completely soaked like a sponge <laughs> on and and uh, and uh, so i mean <laughs> i would say this is the degree of 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 uh, of um to, to what degree sort of been integrated with that said uh, for people that are curious, um, I actually don't drink that much ayahuasca anymore. Uh, maybe three, four times a year. It's not uh, sometimes two times a year. I don't know. You just usually concentrate over a couple of weeks uh, during the year, and then the rest of the time I barely drink. So you know, just so people understand that. So that is not that it. Another thing that tends to happen is that the more time goes by, the less you need it. So let's get into the present situation of ayahuasca. So, who and when? exported ayahuasca from the jungle to the west it's uh, it's it's uh, it's hard to say um, for example the the history of Spain that is the part that I know uh, um, best um, it arrives it seems to arrive um, um, that we know of around the late 80s, to the early 90s. I mean, there's some, there's some, uh, there's some previous explorers that went pretty deep, but that's when you sort of you begin to get the stories. Uh, it's usually tied to the ayahuasca churches that are traveling and they are bringing it. This was the point of entry to most, not not everyone, but most of the early people. Um, and then this establishes a link, so so the, the the churches would pass, for example, like the pass through Ibiza people would get experience of it. And then this establishes a link, and that means that the next thing that happens is that people go to the Amazon to search for this. And then they enter the culture, and then they visit more, and then there starts to be more visits back. Um, that's sort of how it develops. Another, another, so through sort of visiting ayahuasca members, also visiting shamans, and then the other way around, and then people visiting the jungle, and then bringing it back to their countries of origin. Um, Lately, there there is a second sort of thing that ha- that happens around sort of certain uh, um, psychologists, psychotherapists, psychoanalysts um, uh, uh, interest. There's a second wave there, I would say. But that's it's been it's been very organic, and it's exactly the same thing as what I describe. I think what happened with the tribes. You get one person, and if I, that this person finds it interesting, useful, enriching, and then the people around them have some, you know, perhaps some distrust of what is this, I don't know about this, I've never seen it, this is strange, it tastes awful, makes you throw up, then they try it, and then they feel that their lives have been enriched, and from there it jumps to the next person, and then to the next person. So just like it jumped from tribe to tribe, it jumps from person to person. Indeed, it didn't jump from tribe to tribe. It jumped from person to person always. It was just person in other tribes. This phenomenon has never stopped happening since the day it was invented, and it continues to happen. Yes. And so what do you see in terms of the the Western news of ayahuasca? What are the typical um, misuse? You know, c- can you just comment on, on, on how... Um, how the Western shaman or the neo shaman have, have been integrating this medicine with the with the West, and 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 what do you think about it? So, we have a, a, a cultural practice that is very ingrained in the culture. Uh, so, like indigenous people have had a direct relationship for you know uh, traditional in these tribes for hundreds, if not thousands of years. The the brew you know has had an absolute key pivotal role in their culture. And there's an entire set of practices, songs, teachings, lessons that are built with it and how to work with it. Hmm? This is something that is hard for us to, in a way, relate to because we don't have this many of these things that go back. We have a lot of cultural practices that we're very good at. For example, legal litigation. You know, this is like, you know, highly specialized, very complex. Not everybody can do it. Only a few people in our culture are the experts in this. It is incredibly complex. It takes years of study and mastery to be able to do this. Now, and we can imagine that it would not be easier for somebody from outside our culture, for somebody from a very remote village in a very remote culture to actually get good at legal litigation the way we're good at legal litigation or the way a person who was born into a family of lawyers would be good at it and had already been sort of, and you know, and not only a family of lawyers, a family where your grandfather was a lawyer and your father was a lawyer and your great-grandfather was a lawyer, you know, and, and this is in the bloodline of the family. 
and this is something you've heard about, right? This is sort of what happens. What happens is that we have highly evolved cultural practices, and I'm being light about it. Like I'm talking about, you know, the the, the sort of energetic, spiritual work that happens with ayahuasca, and comparing it to sort of the intellectual work of litigation. And it's not that. It's much, much more complex. It's not just a set of knowledge. But anyway, let's just imagine for the metaphor um, that 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 this is similar. Now we have people that travel to the Amazon. They become fascinating with this, with this, you know, very complex and very evolved, you know, sort of traditions where you know, grandfather, great grandfather, you know, the father, the son, everybody has been practicing this, and they want to learn. They want to do it too. So the question is, how much can these people really learn? And are they aware of how much they're learning and how much they're not learning? And, you know, and the answer is, of course, they can learn a limited, you know, first of all, you know, they're not indigenous, they were not born there, they are, they're, they're lacking the cultural context. And very often, they're also lacking the, even the language, you know, many of these people don't even speak Spanish, never mind the indigenous language, you know, just the halfway through language, which is Spanish. But of course, they're going back to their country. And in their country, nobody has ever seen, right? So, you know, it, it might be that, uh, uh, you know, if you were studying litigation, you know, you would not get very far in, in the country of origin of litigation as, as a litigator. But if you go back to your country of origin where nobody has heard of litigation, well, I mean, you might be, you know, the people that knows the most about litigation of the entire neighborhood or your entire city. This is sort of um, what happens. You know, with, with that said, um, there is, uh, people have done, have put tremendous effort and people have learned a lot and there's very, very good non-indigenous people that are doing this. You know, I will give perhaps another example. You know, in Spain we have our traditional culture that has flamenco music and bullfighting. And this was also passed from father to son and entire generations of, you know, and the sort of the origin and the, you know, and the ties to the gypsy people and gypsy culture and all of this. Uh, with all of this being absolutely true, you know, some people have come from Japan and they moved to Spain in their mid-twenties and they spent, you know, 8, 10, 12, 20 years and, you know, they are amazing flamenco musicians and some of them are even, you know, bullfighters. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying it can't be done. It can be done and it's done often or relatively often. Um, but it's useful to understand how difficult it is to do it right. Because if we don't, you know, I think we risk being deeply disrespectful uh, to the to the traditions and to the cultures of origin. So this is um, this is very interesting. Um, and so, if if I may, I just want to add a little bit the difference between a ceremony where the guide or the facilitator um, serves the medicine and then puts a playlist. And a ceremony where there is uh, a driver, if you want. My personal experience is that when the shaman drinks with you, he goes to the same place, or a similar place, and, and, and then can take you in this ride. When, when there is no driver, um, the bus can be a little bit all over the places. So this is something which is very important in terms of understanding how critical is the experience of the of the shaman um what about um the importance of um, intention and integration can you comment a little bit on these two topics on the first part of the question about the guide you know re i recently heard something that i think is useful as a sort of tool to understand this and it was about the difference between guiding sessions and sitting or holding space. So uh, one thing it is to, um, you know, share, you know, some plant, hallucinogen, you know, uh, with another person and sort of sit with them to accompany them through the experience and sort of help out if they have some sort of problem. And that's sort of a, a, a lower level in terms of the work that is being done. It's just the work of accompanying and holding and this is, I think, the work that most of our sort of therapists and, and, and a lot of Western people are comfortable doing. That's what they want to do. They want to sit. They want to sit for other people. And then I would say the work that comes from the tradition, sort of shamanic Amazonian stuff, is not, um, is not sitting, it's guiding. 
So that means that one is not just able to sort of sit and you know hold the space and accompany the person and help out if there's something wrong, but that one is theoretically able to direct what is happening during the session through the songs, through the energetic work, through shamanic practices, but one is actually sort of conducting, giving shape, modulating the night and the experience of everybody who participates. Uh, this is a higher level. Hmm? This is the higher level. This is this is this is. I would say, <laughs> perhaps this is the difference between knowing a lot about music and being able to listen to music and being able to to separate, you know, a, a good good guitars from a bad guitarist, and being able to play music and be a good guitarist, right? And both both persons are engaged with music. Both persons have a deep appreciation for it. Those, the, both persons have a, a deep understanding for it. But one person can go one step higher. But so, and and what about the intention and the integration? For the second part, that has to do with the the work of the guide. Then, um, then comes the the work of the participant, because the participant is not a sort of passive subject that is just going to take ingest a, a psychoactive plant in you know preparation in this case, and then something is going to happen to them. That's not that's not it. This is this is again. I would say the difference between the difference between I don't know I don't know if it's the difference between masturbation and making love, and both things involve you know sort of same physical mechanisms, but there's much more going on. Uh, uh, it's a different type of participation, and some parts are actually not fully under your control when you're making love, and that's what's good about it. Um, so. The ayahuasca is going to provide people, most people, with a very powerful, usually deeply meaningful experience. For some people, it's some of the most powerful, meaningful things that will happen to them in their lives. So now, so can be, lovemaking can also be like this. So the question is, how are you going to wrap this experience to maximize this? You know, again, like in lovemaking, you know, love, lovemaking can be something completely shallow, you know, and sort of sexual, and two people can use each other to have sex, or a deep contact between two people. And if you're gonna have a deep contact, it seems like a lot of other things would have to be right. It had to be the right person, it had to be the right environment. You're not gonna, maybe you can do this in the in, in, the, in the bathtub of a, of a club, but you know, usually it, it tends to happen in another environment altogether with sort of certain preparation, certain things that happen before, certain things that happen during, and certain things that happen after. So, when people talk about intention and integration, what they're talking about is what place are you gonna give in your life to the very strong experience that you're going to have so that you not only have a, a strong experience, but you, you create a container that, 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 that makes it uh, uh, as, as deep, as profound, as good as possible. Now, this, this has to do with the fact that human beings, we, we are not just, you know, we're not robots, right? So, for example, if I if I made you a gift, and I just give it to you, say I'm I'm giving you I don't know a watch, and I just give it to you and I throw it on the table, it's not the same that if I take the watch and I make a really nice nice box and a nice wrapper and you know very nice paper and you know sort of folds and it opens and it has a letter with a beautiful message. The watch is exactly the same. The gift is exactly the same. Theoretically, if we were robots, it would make no difference if I throw the watch down or if I put it in a wrapper. But because we're robots, this wrapper actually makes a big difference for the gift, right? It's not, it's not just the gift itself, right? It's not just the watch. It's how it came to you, it's who gave it to you, in what circumstances, what they said, all of this. It's not the same that I give you a watch, that your father gives you the same watch, but it's a watch that he's had for 40 years. It's the same watch, but it's not the same, right? All of this also applies for ayahuasca. So one needs to wrap the experience uh, 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 respect it, you know, and put it, the experience is what it is, but there's a lot of work that needs to happen around it to make it uh, uh, really sort of powerful. And this includes, for example, setting up an intention. So thinking about what you want ayahuasca to teach you, to show you, what you want to think about, what you want to work on, you know, so why are you drinking ayahuasca? This seems like, who cares? This is deeply important. And then just as important, what are you going to do with just with just with with just happened to you? That's the integration. 
Uh, and I think in our culture, we're very good at having the experience, the watch, <laughs> and not so good at everything else. We're very good at buying watches, but not so good about making really meaningful gifts. So um, I'd love you to to talk a little bit more about the integration. I mean, the 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 the, um, the intention. I think the metaphor of the love making and the present is very self-explanatory. So it has to do with 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 open heart and respect and and a truly desire to communicate to to commune with the divine, with other people, with yourself. Um, but in terms of integration, how can we tell our listener a little bit more how to go about it? In, in, in integration has to do with how do you make sense of what happened to you? Because you're going to drink ayahuasca and a number of things are going to happen to you. Uh, some of them are going to be sort of easy to understand. For example, you're going to realize that you should uh, tell such and such person that you're sorry about one time you hurt them or that, you know, these sort of things, for example, are very frequent or you're going to realize that, you know, such and such person was actually very important in your life and you're very grateful and it's been a long time since you thought about them or you're going to think about a recent disagreement or argument or you're going to realize how much you truly love your children or, your, you know, all, all of these things. Th and these things are somewhat easy to interpret. The message is clear. But then sometimes in ayahuasca other things happen that are not so easy to interpret people have visions and these visions can get quite elaborate but hard to understand you know if people will see a tiger or people will see a trash dump, but people will see a bunch of horses running across a field and 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 what does this mean why did i see that some people will recover sometimes memories of things that happened in their childhood is this a real memory is it not what does this mean? That's integration. So integration is how do you work with all of the material that emerge during the session in a way that is constructive and meaningful. Because, like I say, sometimes the messages from ayahuasca are pretty obvious and clear and direct, but sometimes they're not. So the danger, if one doesn't do the integration work, is that one remains it's like having an interesting experience, like seeing a really crazy movie or like, you know, bumping into the street into an interesting but wacky person who tells you some things about yourself and some gives you some strange advice and then walks away. Now, this could be a life-changing event or it could be just something funny that happened to you. It depends on how you work with it. This is, you know, I would say the other side of the wrapper, right? Um, so um, I'll give an example. You know, um, there is a lot of, misunderstandings uh, that happen with people um, uh, especially at the beginning in terms of what what happens to them meant for example people will have a terrible experience sometimes it's not it's not uh, it's not very common but it but it happens people sometimes they drink ayahuasca and they have a miserable experience Miserable in you know that the, there's 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 a million ways in, in which it can be miserable. It can be very painful. People can be sick. People can have very scary or 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 or, or disagreeable visions. People can have you know all sorts of you know, you know really very very difficult time and night, and they're really dying for the experience to be over. And when it's over, they never want to drink ayahuasca again. This I would say is a failure in integration. Why? Because if you do proper integration work and you begin to dig with the help of a person, this usually integration means integrator, it's usually a psychologist or a, or a psychologist that has training in helping people integrate, um, or a person who's not a psychologist but then that has experience on this, if you begin to dig about, you know, the sort of the negative feelings that you were having or even the negative and scary visions that you were seeing, one after some work will realize that actually these things are not sort of random they are related to your to that person's life to that person's experience or to that person's situation so something was being put in front of this person uh, it was very unpleasant because it was a very unpleasant thing but that doesn't mean that it was a a, a, a mistake something that shouldn't have happened or that has no meaning without integration 
usually what happens is that the person says, I hated ayahuasca and I never want to drink again. With integration, usually the person comes to realize that what happened to them, it was a sort of pointer, a sort of finger pointing to an area of their life that was troubled and that needed attention. Um, so in that sense, you know, one can think about ayahuasca as a sort of microscope. You know, a microscope makes very small things very big. Now, this is useful because it lets you, it's allow, it allows you to discover, you know, for example, the effect of bacteria and virus, which you normally can't see, but they have a big effect. But it also sort of, it tends to exaggerate things. So if you look at a flea on the microscope, it looks like a horrible monster. But it's just a flea. It does look like that, but it's just... So ayahuasca in general tends to exaggerate things, the good and the bad. And this is useful because it lets you see small things that you wouldn't normally notice. It is dangerous because you can end up thinking that what you saw as big is actually big in real life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's very clear. Um, I was thinking that, you know, one of my teachers once said that, you know, ayahuasca give you a glimpse on your subconscious and the subconscious doesn't speak English or Spanish or Italian. It speaks in shape and color and mood. And, and so maybe sometimes um, you need the help of, a, of, of an expert of the psyche and maybe an expert of the Western psyche would have a better insight in understanding the nature of your subconscious. So that's how I was thinking, maybe can can be an advantage of, of a neo-shaman or, or maybe of a collaboration between an indigenous shaman and a psychologist. And I know that there are now centers that are using shaman for the practice and then psychologists for the integration. Very good. So let's attack the third part of this talk about the future of, of ayahuasca. This is, um, as we mentioned on the introduction, this is pretty much your career now <laughs> to try to mm, figure out a way of integrating this compound. And so why don't you tell us a little bit, I know you have this metaphor of the lighthouse. So um, this idea that, you know, you want to, lo to look maybe 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years in the future and, and uh, tell us what would you like to see in terms of ayahuasca in the West? And the work that I've been doing for the past few years at ICERS revolves around uh, ceremonial plant use, around the future of ceremonial plant use outside of the countries of origin. So that's quite a, let me sort of slowly unpack that because it's quite a sentence. Um, as I think most of your followers of your podcast will know, we're currently in the midst of a psychedelic, what is called a psychedelic renaissance, which basically revolves around the medicalization of you know certain psychedelic compounds. And you know, Maps is doing work and Compass and other places, and it could be that you know very soon in the future, many of these substances will be prescription drugs uh, that will be you know prescribed by psychiatrists, administered by you know mental by 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 health professionals you know, and probably, hopefully, covered by insurance, by medical insurance. Um, this, is, this, is a, this is a fantastic development. I, I applaud it wholeheartedly. Um, but it comes with certain limits. Uh, the first limit, of course, is that in order to have a, a prescription drug, you need to have a diagnosis and an application for it. So in order to get, uh, for example, in the future, near future, in order to get psilocybin or in order to get um, MDMA, you need to have PTSD or you need to have uh, depression. And then you can, you can have off-label uses. But basically, doctors deal with diseases. Diseases are diagnosed. Where there's a diagnosis, there's a disease. Where there's a disease, there's a drug that you can use against it. So what we're building is the possibility of legally applying psychedelics for people with different illnesses different diagnosis. I think this is fantastic. And I again, I applaud it. I am a little bit concerned or worried, or I notice, however, that the vast majority of the use of plant medicines, which is what I know, and uh, the vast majority of people using plant medicines nowadays, do not have what would qualify as a medical diagnosis. And maybe they won't, they never will. That means that they are automatically ruled out of this system. Right. So what I see, not in the hospitals, but in the real world, is that the large majority of people that are using these plants, not just here, but also in the traditional world, they had something, they had a need for these plants, you know, but it was closer to what it would be called some sort of 
I don't know, you know, sort of life transition or life crisis, but not a medical condition. Um, so I'm interested in uh, keeping the door open for non-medical uses of these plants. I think this is going to be the second wave and the most interesting one after the medical uses. And I'm also uh, interested in, you know, the model that comes from indigenous groups, which is not uh, a, a therapist gives somebody a pill, lays them down on a couch, puts a mask and headphones and sits with them through the experience. And then after the experience is over, they talk about it. They have a conversation about it. This is the, this is the Western model. The traditional model is quite different. Uh, it's a, a group of people get together uh, to take at the same time while being guided by a person who's a, a sort of expert in modulating what happens during the experience uh, and, 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 uh, and working with this group. Most of them don't have a medical condition. They're using, they're using these for other things. Um, so I think there is a very, I think they're very complementary, these two uses. One is more medical and individual, and the other one is more having to do with personal growth and tends to happen in groups, in communities of practice, in a group of people that gather around a person who serves. And these people even, they develop relationships there, they become friends. This is not, this is not you know, it, it's another paradigm, it's another way of thinking of things. This is not, you know, we, we believe... Uh, um, you know, that cancer is an individual thing. You don't, you don't, if you get diagnosed with cancer, you're not going to, I mean, you do, but you, you don't, it, it's not part of it that you're going to spend a lot of time with other cancer patients and you become friends of them and their practice, you know. And yet, this is sort of what we, what, what comes from the traditional way. And I think it's very, very useful. It's something that is more integrated into the society. It's not a medical practice. It's a, it's a, it's a, it, 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 ha it has to do with, with uh, you know what one uh, Kofan elder told me how to live he said ayahuasca teaches yaje they call it uh, teaches human beings how to live this is not medicine this is life um, part of the work I do is to try to imagine how this how to live part and ceremonial part and group part and non-medical part of the use of these plants finds a place in our society. I'm very clear of how the medical uh, 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 compounds are gonna find a place in our society. I'm not very clear how this other part is going to. And I think it would be sad if it doesn't find a place in our society because I find it's some of the most uh, uh, powerful and useful and interesting part of these plants. Um, so my work uh, and the work I do revolves around sort of trying to investigate, research, and imagine a future for this plant. So what would need to happen? What would we like this to be like? What, 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 what would we like the, the, neo, the, 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 the Western neo-shamans of the future to, uh, to be like? And also, you know, what would like in visiting indigenous shamans? What would that look like? You know, would they need a special license? Would they have to get registered with some health authority? Would it not be a health authority? Is this, you know, would this happen as some sort of university? Would this happen as some sort of like, you know, th there's a lot of, uh, we need to imagine, and that's where the lighthouse is, um, how these things are going to be integrated. Because what, I s what I've seen, when you, one, one looks, for example, ayahuasca is one, that, like I said, that it expands. It's, a, it, it, it's reached us, like it reached all the other, it's been expanding for hundreds of years and it will continue to expand. And that once it has expanded, it eventually becomes settled in the culture and it becomes a very important part of the culture. And this you can see in all of the indigenous groups, you can see the tra in the ayahuasca churches, in people that have had, you know, hundreds of year relationship with these substances, they take a very important place in the culture and a very useful place. So how is that going to be for us? Because I believe that this will keep expanding and that, you know, tens and hundreds of years from now, it will still be in the culture. So how does that, how would we like that to be? And that involves a lot of thinking because you know n not just it, it, it presents us with quite an interesting challenge not just in terms of law and regulatory but also in cultural in how we imagine these things uh, and how so that the, the the work that i 
that I do in one part is sort of regulatory science fiction. It has to do with imagining what would need to change in our societies for these things to be approved and, 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 and you know, people could use this in a legal and safe way. And then, you know, one would think of how to work that backwards. And then the other thing has to do with something that is closer to um, to sort of a union making. So what is what is what is what what needs to change in the people that are already practicing this in our societies, in order to be accepted like another profession? So I look at the way other new professions came into the culture. For example, acupuncturists, which once upon a time were outside of our medical culture and now they're accepted. Or for example, coaches, you know, who also, you know, when they begin, when they originally appear, it wasn't very clear. Here's a group of people that are doing sort of listening and advising, but they're not psychologists and they're not mental health professionals, yet there's some overlap with the work that mental health professionals do. So how does that work happen that, you know, when we went to having when coaching was something completely new that a strange group of people were doing and nobody knew how it fit to the place where we are now, where it's a sort of established profession within our culture. And I'm trying to imagine how this could play out or how we would like this to play out for uh, people using uh, plants, you know, ceremonially outside of the countries of origin. Whew, I hope that made sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. And I think that I totally agree that um, the medicalization is now happening. The next important application will be the, you know, the art of living, which is also be called the, uh, the ontological approach. This idea of understanding, you know, our own purpose and mission in life, and so there's going to be a situation where, you know, the typical midlife crisis, where someone is a bit lost in terms of. Um, what his mission is and why his marriage is not working and why the, why the kids are angry with them or something. And, and so the way I see it is that, you know, like the example of the coaching, you can either get a coach, which is going to be a licensed psychotherapist who can come home with the, with the, with the medicine and, and do private sittings, or you're going to have um, maybe local clinics or collaborations between the two. I mean, I, th I think, you know, the, the ability to guide the session, uh, which involves sometimes things like being able to sing well, uh, and the ability to uh, help people integrate what happened are two different skill sets. Maybe in the future, one person will be able to do both things. For the present, in our societies, outside of the countries of origin, it seems wise to have a collaboration, a collaboration between the people who are skilled at handling the session, handling the night, and the people who are skilled at uh, helping people integrate and, he and helping people prepare afterwards. Now, there's for sure going to be in the future uh, some sort of psychedelic clinics, staff with psychiatrists and people, you know, administering these substances for medical uses. I would like to imagine also that there will be something that is more like a retreat center, more of like a place of rest, where people who are undergoing some sort of life crisis or who need a break or who need to, or who are not doing well or who need to think about stuff or process or whatever can go. And people who are uh, experts at administering this, uh, you know, and, you know, usually doing more ceremonial work, you know, can, uh, people can just take the time there to sort of sort these things out, these things that are not actually medical diagnosis but are something else for which actually psychedelics are incredibly, uh, um, incredibly uh, useful. You know, I, I actually question if psychedelics are not more useful for people with not medical diagnosis. And it might be that actually giving, you know, in some cases, uh, uh, psychedelics to people with medical diagnosis is very powerful, but it also can be very dangerous because it's very powerful. So it, there's, there's, a, there's a, what we do know is that you know moderately you know healthy people, uh, you know mentally uh, healthy without a medical diagnosis, undergoing some sort of you know personal crisis, uh, generally speaking, greatly benefit from the use of these plants. Um, so I would like to imagine a place, speaking about the future of or the lighthouse, a place outside every city in the world where people who are undergoing some sort of life crisis know that they can go and take a few days off and get help with these substances and these plants by people that know how to work with it. You know, this also means, in a sense, that, that you know, I mean, there's a whole other issue there with money and sort of how to make it work economically. 
uh, that is very important because what we're talking behind that is access. Uh, it could also be that this is some sort of prevention med medicine instead of intervention. And that is uh, and that is much worth, much much worthwhile, much much better to take you know the psychedelics before you're depressed, <laughs> and that's where they would help the most, uh, as opposed to once you're depressed when you know they can also help a lot. But you know always, you know any any doctor will tell you you know it's much better to prevent than to cure. And most people arrive to the doctor's office too late when when the problems are very advanced and it's much much more difficult, you know. Uh, um, if if people had only gone earlier, and do their checkups, and you know, and keep a healthy lifestyle, you know, things would have been, you know, the the medical intervention needed, which would have been much smaller, much less intrusive. Very good. This is very clear. So, um, w what um, what advice do you have for um, for two kind of people? For people that listen to this and are intrigued and want to try this experience, would you still recommend them? I mean, they can't do it legally in Europe. Is there any somewhat legal facility in Europe for, for Europeans that want to try that or you recommend to fly to the to the jungle? First of all, I, I, I wouldn't recommend this to anybody. I think it's a very dangerous thing. The same way that I wouldn't recommend, you know, I, I think, you know, climbing the Himalaya might be a life-changing experience, but I wouldn't go out telling everybody that they should climb the Himalaya. I absolutely encourage people who are called to climb the Himalaya <laughs> to try, you know, to you know, to to thoughtfully prepare and train and research and go for it. But I th I think you know, and this is another aspect where I have uh, some issues with the sort of medicalization of psychedelics, because I don't think this is. I'm not so sure this is something you can prescribe. In terms of you know, you can take a person that doesn't know what this experience is and say, as a doctor, I think you should have this experience. This is not like an antibiotic. You know, if things go wrong or, thi or the night gets difficult, you're going to get very, very angry with the doctor. So it's very important that you have total buy-in. <laughs> it's very important that you want to try, that you, you, you know, so for example, in the ayahuasca churches where they have, you know, a lot of experience with this, with sort of what do you do with the neighbors who don't drink ayahuasca? They have a double policy. You know, one is that the temple is open to anybody who wants to come. So, you know, if you would like to, you know, drink ayahuasca in Brazil with one of the ayahuasca churches, you literally just have to show up at the door and say, I would like to participate. And they are uh, um, uh, within, you know, certain logical constraints, obligated by the doctrine to let you in, to invite you in and to share with you. On the other hand, it is not allowed to invite your neighbors. So that means, that doesn't mean you cannot tell your neighbors, I drink ayahuasca and it's done me good. You can. What you cannot say is, I drink ayahuasca, it's done me good, and I think you should try it. When you say that, you are overstepping your boundaries. You cannot recommend people a life-changing experience. People have to want to have a life-changing experience. <laughs> so that's the first, I would say that's the first step so you know for people who do are called to climb the himalayas <laughs> um everybody else don't worry if you're not called for this if you're scared of it if it sounds like too much it's absolutely fine people it's not an obligation people don't need to do this it's not it's not you know absolutely you know the main counterindication for drinking ayahuasca is not wanting to drink ayahuasca if you don't want to drink ayahuasca you absolutely shouldn't absolutely shouldn't it's really bad idea to drink ayahuasca when you don't, you know, it's like, like a kiss or like sex. If you want to be kissed, it's going to be fantastic. If you don't want to be kissed, it's going to be intrusive, disgusting, sloppy. Blech. But um, th there is also something to be said that um, you only grow out of your comfort zone. So if you, I'm not, I'm not encouraging, I'm not encouraging people. I totally agree with Geronimo that it's a, it's a, it's an intense experience, and you have to do your research. But I don't know almost anybody who regretted to have drink. Yeah, but again, uh, uh, but that's because also the the people who regret to drink they disappear and they never drink again. And they never tell anybody. And then and they don't tell exactly. So you know, again, that's what I said about calling. I think you can be afraid. You can be. You can have doubts. You can. But you know if you're called to it or not. It's something that you have to check with yourself. It's that simple. It's really that simple. If you if you are you know if you are if you're not called to it, you sort of know. And if you're called to it, you sort of know too. Even if you have certain misgivings or or, or you're thinking, well, yes, but not yet. Okay, not yet. If I may, for people that are listening now, this conversation, you know, do you want to do it? You don't want to do it? What I would suggest is 
watch a bunch of documentary on Mango TV. <laughs> there is Neurons on Nirvana. There is um, a new one, a Songs That Brings You Home. I'm sorry if I misspelled this title. Shock to All. Um, yeah, on a, on a drug section, there's a bunch of documentary. And then, Jero, what what kind what book would you recommend to someone who prefer to read instead of watch? All of Jeremy Narby's books are are very good and very interesting. Uh, his last one is called, I think, Plant Teachers: Ayahuasca, Tobacco, and the Pursuit of Knowledge. is a very very interesting. It's a it's a it's a little book. It's not very long, and it's a very very interesting. And I think there's a lot of future in it. Collaboration between an indigenous shaman you know so the indigenous perspective and the western scientific perspective and he does a beautiful job putting both forms of knowledge together um yeah that that's you know i think that's a very good starting point very good this is very very useful information um last question for those that want to help the legalization um, what would you recommend? They can donate to ICEers? Yes, please donate to ICEers. We're a small NGO, like all NGOs. We are uh, uh, always struggling uh, for funds, like all NGOs. We could always do more work if we had more donations. Um, so, you know, if you are listening to this and, and these plans have been helpful to you uh, in your own life, in your own path, and you would like to give back or you would like to ensure that, you know, or you would like to help ensure that the, that the that the that the promise that these plants hold is sort of upheld and protected, you know. Well, you know, you could, you know, we would gladly take donations to keep doing the work that we're doing. Yes, it's uh, icears.org. Also, also they have a defense fund to help people with um, legal cases around uh, the use of this uh, ayahuasca. People can Google Geronimo ayahuasca and find a lot of talks and video from different. Uh, psychedelic conference uh, Jerome has been invited to um, is it okay if we share your personal email if someone has a burning desire to reach out to you yes it's very easy it's just Geronimo at ICRS.org I really want to thank Geronimo because I asked him to stay within an hour and I know for him um, you know he, he's such an intellectual and he wants to really give uh, justice to every topic so I, I, I really violated him a little bit but I promise we'll, we'll have him back to, to expand on uh, these fascinating topics thank you very much for coming thank you, thank you for having me Giancarlo it's been a pleasure Coca sunara sunara 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 Coca sunara sunara